Hey, before we start this episode, just want to remind you that the Fearless Woman's Guide to Starting a Business is available everywhere that you like to buy books, and you can get it in paperback, Kindle, and even as an audiobook. I'll have links on where you can purchase in the podcast notes. Okay, back onto the show. You are listening to One Broken Mom, a podcast dedicated to raising awareness about mental health, parenting, and self-improvement. I'm the host, Ami Quirconi. One Broken Mom is not a family show. It is intended for adults only and may contain adult language. Sometimes the topics are serious, but you can count on the episodes to be entertaining. Also, One Broken Mom is not offering any psychiatric or medical diagnosis. We're just here giving away useful and important information. So if you're ready to hear real talk by real people so that we can all get better together, then you're in the right place and welcome. Okay, welcome everybody to One Broken Mom again, and I have with me Michelle Piper, and I know many of you have listened to several episodes that she and I have done together. Michelle is a family and marriage therapist based out of San Diego, and she is a specialist when it comes to working with adult children that had narcissistic mothers and deal with narcissistic abuse. She has a fantastic website called NarcissisticMother.com, and you can go there, and I've actually heard uh, from friends that have actually been visiting the website and using it. Um, it's kind of funny, Michelle, they, they share it with other people that they feel need to read what's on your website. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's good. You yeah. know, it's, it's there for us to be a resource. I'm glad right. Using it. <laughs> right. And so what Michelle and I have been talking about, she came on, we talked about the narcissistic mother overall. And then we've been diving into the different roles that narcissistic mom puts her kids into that we as adults get to figure out which one of them might've been us. And so we've broken down the golden child and the hero. We kind of took and tackled that one in one episode. Then we did the lost child because I didn't want it to be the last one that we got to. That was the best choice. Yeah. (laughs) Right. And so today we're talking about the mascot and um, I want... This is one where I think that we probably in our life have ran into somebody and I, you know, you're here to tell me if I'm wrong, but when we think of that kid, who's always the class clown mm-hmm. and is always trying to diffuse the situation with humor and all of those strategies and tactics that we're used to seeing that felt to me as I was kind of reading through this and, and understanding this is like, that feels like that's what we're talking about is that mascot, that that's what the mascot is. Exactly. So, okay. And so you see this a lot with comedians as well. And you will, you know, notice that in their interviews, often they'll discuss a distant or narcissistic parent. Oh, that's really sad. I know. Isn't that yeah. sad? <laughs> it so- is very sad because they're lovable people. And on top of that, they often see their value as related to how entertaining they can be. So sometimes they're accidentally surrounded by people who enjoy their company and they're only as good as how enjoyable they are to, you know, some of those people. So sometimes they don't get nearly as much support as they deserve because they've been so wonderful to be around. It's a pretty ironic position to be in. Right. And I think a lot of us obviously, you know, were shocked, you know, to hear about like Robin Williams suicide yeah. and also to find, you know, so many comedians that we've known in our lives that actually have passed away, have had like terrible drug addictions, drug and alcohol addictions that have ended up shortening their lives. And you're just like, I, you know, you never imagine that there's anything wrong with them, that they're actually unhappy. 
Um, but not everybody gets up on stage and becomes a comedian. We, you know, right. have probably ran into some people that diffuse tension through humor or yeah. meaning or, or something like that. So, um, Let's go back through, like I said, we, I always like to start with the review in case this is the first episode somebody gets into. So break down what are the typical roles narcissistic mom usually throws her kids into. Usually there's a lost child, somebody who has learned that if you fade into the woodwork and try to avoid conflict and avoid uh, mom, that there's a benefit from that. And so the lost child is the one that tends to uh, adopt another family or get involved in relationships very young that will take them out of the family system. Um, and we've discussed that in some, in a past podcast, another one is scapegoat. And this one is often called the truth teller. They're the ones that really cannot let an injustice pass by and they <laughs> sit there and stew and blurt and get in trouble for saying what's obvious in the family. And they often get singled out for being somebody that makes the narcissistic parent feel powerless or ineffective. So that person can take a lot of flack. Then we have the hero child. The hero is a very um, important position in the family because you're the one that's trying to solve problems, trying to get everybody to work together, to move forward. You're seen as a representative of what is good about the family, what is exceptional in the family. And so we'll talk a little bit later in the episode about how mascots and hero children can sometimes get in a tussle. (laughs) Because we've got one trying to joke to make the family happy and the other one trying to uplift everybody's behavior and reputation to make mom happy. And that sometimes doesn't go together. Interesting. Yeah, so that's interesting. Um, So those are some of the major roles. There's also golden child. And this is the one where everybody looks and thinks this person's got it so easy. They can't do anything wrong in mom's eyes. And the price that the golden child often pays is they are enmeshed with that parent for life and they don't individuate and become their own self. They are somebody that is always part of mom more closely than anybody else. Mm. Yeah. And to me, honestly, I mean, they're all sad roles to be in and yeah. to see and witness other people in those roles. And, um, and I, and I just, from a personal standpoint, the golden one is probably one of the most heartbreaking roles because I think it is misunderstood, probably a lot like the mascot where there's yeah. a misunderstanding of how good it really is because of the, the playing and the acting, you know, that you end up doing to survive in that role. So I guess what's interesting is we talk about that narcissistic moms apply these roles to their children, but does mom really create a mascot or does the mascot create itself? So there's pressure in a dysfunctional family system. And these roles were initially discussed in context of an addiction, a family that had an addictive presence where one or more uh, people had a substance abuse issue. The narcissist has an addiction to intensity. So it's no surprise that, oh, we get these roles in this type of family as well. And does the mom sit down and read a manual and go, "Mm -hmm, I'm going to assign that to you and that to you? No, but it is a, a consistent pattern that we see in these families that the pressure um, ends up splitting and fracturing the sibling relationships Uh, so that there is less likelihood of things boiling over in the family as they're trying to survive as an intact unit. Mm. It makes me think of Plinko, 
on, uh, <laughs> you know, where we talk about marbles, right? Yeah. And I, I talk with Dr. Uh, Lindsay Gibson. She she tackles the topic of emotionally immature parents, which are kind of they they're hand in hand with narcissism a bit. Mm-hmm. And it's you guys both use the same analogy of that mom has just got marbles. There's no connection between all of these pieces. They're just individual things all in a bag. And so I can just see that, you know, the narcissistic dynamic is dropping the marble through the Plinko and where everybody falls, you know, as they bounce off all the pins is yeah. landing in there. Yeah. Uh, so, um, so let's, let's describe mascot, um, as a kid and then what mascot looks like as an adult. So mascot as a kid is charming and is amusing and tends to distract people from their pain in a painful system. So they're really beloved. They're often the youngest. I was going uh, to ask that because yeah. if they were the youngest child, huh? Yeah, that is a common birth order uh, coincidence that both uh, the mascot role and the youngest child tend to go together. And the mascot is smart in that he's or she is misdirecting people from conflict, uh, redirecting them from conflict. So when you think of the mascot, imagine the court jester in a uh, a very narcissistic uh, royal court where the uh, queen or the king is all powerful. And if people disagree with that power, they can be beheaded, you know? And so a jester was there to alleviate pressure and when there was conflict to kind of give a hint to the person that was making tension um, with the power figure so that that person wouldn't be hurt. And so it serves a purpose then that we have this jester or mascot looking up at the family and absorbing a lot of this pain before they even have words. Mm-hmm. And so they are starting to entertain even before they're verbal to try to detract, uh, distract when there is tension. So they learn at a very pre-verbal um, young age that there's a way to make a room feel better. So it's so instinctive. This role is, is probably the least intellectualized role. And this means that the person who's mascot often feels like this is just who they are. And there's a lot of good um, with all these roles, there's advantages. And you can certainly see the advantages of being a charming, funny, entertaining person. But when part of that entertainment came at the cost of you minimizing your feelings, your tension, your feeling of injustice to try to make things easier in the system, in the family, and less stressful, you can see how that can get carried into other relationships and put you at a disadvantage when there's times where you need to advocate for your own needs or to even be aware that you have them. Mm -hmm. It's it's fascinating. You're telling me that, uh, because I'm sitting here listening going, before you're nonverbal, I mean, the brain just blows me away. You know, how does the brain put this together that a child before they're nonverbal would begin to to problem solve like that and choose humor as opposed to any one of the other roles? You know, right. is there, I mean, they, what's going on behind you right now? <laughs> you know, there's a little repair going on. So let's take a break and I will close some windows and doors. Okay. Sounds good. Okay, I'll be right back. <laughs> All right. So the minute you hear anything, just go ahead and say pause and we will just stop because okay. they're 
some road work outside of the office. <laughs> it's no worries. And you thought your kids would be the issue. <laughs> I was like, talk about speedboating. <laughs> but here's the reality is that it's podcasting. And honestly, I, you know, I'm okay with it. You know, I've got another show where sometimes you could hear a tractor and I'm just like, you know what, folks, you're just going to hear this. So today, everyone, yes, Michelle has some construction going on. <laughs> We're just going to roll with this one. So, um, so I, I want to come back to the the mascots about them uh, kind of filling in this role and understanding it. You know, so I'm sitting here going, okay, does the parent is the parent doing something different with the child that makes the child reply with humor? You know, what does it? Let me see if I can yeah. form this question here. Do you, because I feel like I'm yeah. stumbling here, but I'm sitting here going, it seems to be the last child or the, you know, the last born. And so when we think about last born kids, I mean, the joke in parenting is, is that nobody cares about the last born kid, right? right. right. <laughs> um, they get, they get away with everything, which is why part of the sibling dynamic is the first born couldn't do anything. And now the last one gets to do whatever they want. Right. Um, it, does that, is that attitude partly, does that weigh into this evolution of this mascot type of a, of a child? Yes. And so in the toolbox of the mascot is not just humor, but also entertainment or redirection. So sometimes it's being immature and acting in a way that distracts everybody, not in a way that is going to uh, get him punished like a scapegoat, but in a way that is entertaining because a lot of times the youngest is forgiven for a lot of things that the oldest would not have been. Mm -hmm. So that's where in, that's one of the things that helps the mascot role develop in the younger child because the oldest does typically get corrected more. So the younger has more of a, a creative leash in a way to develop kind of a an entertaining way of being so that they can charm the person to pay attention to them. Mm -hmm. So they are looking for what makes mom turn with a smile. They're not looking for, okay, how did I just attract negative attention? They've already watched their older siblings attract negative attention. Mm -hmm. So they've learned they they're great observational learners and they're watching the other siblings and seeing, hmm, that, you know, that doesn't look so good or getting attention that way really doesn't look like it feels good. And so they're already looking for ways to get attention without having it be a negative experience. So when you're thinking of them having this happen before they're verbal, um, you know, this is part of our survival instinct that we ingratiate ourselves to our caregivers. And so the first child is getting a lot of attention due to the anxiety of, I don't want to kill my baby. But by the time there's a second or more, there's a lot less worry in that way. So the child needs to find other ways to gain attention other than being needy. Mm -hmm. And so the mascot offers something instead of comes at somebody with, needs or wants. Right. They have to reach out for the attention as opposed to it coming to them. And that makes now sense when you were talking about them being nonverbal that they're, they are in observation, which always fascinated me like about my kids, especially my son was really observant and you could just see him at a table with everybody and his eyes just moving around the room. And he wasn't, yeah. you know, he was a year old, but we all commented that he was definitely like soaking in 
you know, what was going on. And so that's, that's an interesting idea that the mascot now at the, at the tail end of the family, you know, is coming in and has the benefit of, of learning and seeing everything else that's been going on ahead of them and decides that what I want is a smile. Like I, mm-hmm. I need, I need happy. I need something to, you know, go well for me. And they, by a process of elimination have figured out what it is to, to get there. That's just, that, that's mind blowing how that happens. And with your son, did you notice too, that he often uh, had selective hearing more than the first child? It's, you know, that's another mascot quality where it's <laughs> no head on confrontation if necessary. They'll just kind of- uh, yeah. Well, both of my adult, my teenage <laughs> have selective hearing. So. <laughs> Can't narrow it down that way. Huh? Right, yeah. That's, that's, yeah. I just thought that was all of them. <laughs> Um, so you talked earlier about the, this pitting of the hero versus the mascot. And I, I do know that I have seen this into adulthood and it's, and it's a sad thing for watching a family where there is that, you know, we talked about the holiday dinner where the, you know, all the brothers and sisters get together and there's just this inevitable, you know, standoff between the hero and the mascot. Um, why does that, why does that end up happening? Well, the hero is a perfect person to, you know, pitch jokes toward because they tend to be the heat shield for the family at certain times and they get positive attention. So there is some jealousy for uh, the mascot to capitalize on with his audience. The mascot is a master of the audience and the audience is the family. And so with the hero and the golden, um, they get a lot of positive attention comparatively to the other roles. The golden, though, if you pick on, mom's likely to defend. If the hero's picked on, the hero's expected to rise above. The hero's expected to be a parental figure in the family system in many mm-hmm. ways. And how maddening, then, to be this child that is always expected to do the right thing, be the mature one, be responsible, get the good grades. And then you've got, you know, a little mascot there always getting to do antics like a cute puppy. And, you know, like if the big dog pees on the rug, there's a problem. But if a puppy does, it's like, Oh, that's too bad. You know, (laughs) you know, that's kind of the difference about how they're treated with consequences as well. So in a family dinner, it's really easy to have the mascot chipping away at the hero until the hero might, get frustrated. And then of course, all the intensity, any negative intensity can go there instead of over to the mascot. Mm -hmm. Well, and I would imagine too, that your mascot also has to deal with just not being taken seriously in a family dynamic. Yeah. So it's a good defense mechanism, of course, but your own pain will be minimized. You've done it to yourself sometimes by habit. And then also the people around you have a hard time believing when you're setting a boundary because they're thinking, oh, you're being sarcastic or, oh, just a bad mood. Usually he he's up for anything or she's up for anything. Um, And meanwhile, they're coping with the fear of being abandoned if they're not funny. So Mm -hmm. them setting a boundary is hard. Hmm. So when you're working with adults that have been in that mascot role, you know, what are some of the, you know, we talk about the positives, right? Like, so you get into the entertainment world and you enjoy doing that. But again, you know, like we started off here, there's a, there's a dark side to all of this. There's a sadness to this piece. And so what are, 
you know, like I said, I could see struggling with the idea of not being taken seriously when you want to be taken seriously. But what are some of those other, you know, other things that somebody would, you know, have to try to undo and unleash and unpack, you know, out of their past to get past being in this role? I think one mantra almost for the mascot is I don't have to be entertaining to be valuable. And I don't have to say everything in a way that is easy for everybody to hear. Mm -hmm. Because often when I have a mascot, somebody that's been mostly in the mascot role in session, I have to remind them they don't have to entertain me. You know, they're sitting there paying for time and they're actually trying to make their sorrow and pain sound like a nice, funny story. And that's not going to get their needs met. Mm -hmm. So that's one uh, limitation sometimes that the mascot will minimize things to the point that they're laughing over their pain. They're actually inviting other people to minimize them, but they're trying to explain that, you know, they're not happy with something. Mm Mm-hmm but they don't realize they're undermining their message. So they might be trying to tell a spouse, no, this is a big deal to be in there. Like, well, you're laughing and you make a joke of it all the time. So how was I supposed to know? Yeah. And so do you, uh, do mascots willingly show up into therapy? I mean, do they, do, I mean, does a mascot have that? Uh, a lot of times awareness? they're invited yeah. <laughs> by their spouse um, into therapy and they're coming along to be supportive, but they, often, you know, don't want to deal with negative emotions. It has never been a very rewarding experience to have negative emotions in a narcissistic family system. They've seen how the person who does that gets scapegoated. Mm -hmm. And so that's a scary place for them to be. So they'll try very hard in a session to act like, well, that's not that big a deal or everybody's got that, you know, so many minimizing ways of um, saying it, but what the spouse often has a problem with with the mascot is, but it does bug you. And later I get the sarcastic comment or you get quiet and I don't know who you are. You know, you just shut down or you avoid me. And so that's where it can come up as um, causing an avoidant attachment style, mm-hmm. which can be so hurtful. Yeah. Yeah. I And I wonder too, the a mascot probably has some difficulties changing roles, even if they wanted to. I mean, I I could see that more so, especially if a mascot suddenly became a truth teller, that that would just handle everything. Yeah, everybody's going to feel pretty betrayed, right? If that's a sudden shift, because it's like, well, who's this person? Because, you know, we used to ask your opinion, and it used to be a joke. And now all of a sudden, you're saying, you know, actually, that was really awful and painful for for me. And so what mascots really benefit from is if people can validate feelings. Um, if, if their siblings, when they are serious, can really thank them for sharing that and not trying to get them to get back to the same old guy or the same old sister who always was lighthearted, but to honor their pain by sitting with it instead of trying to change it. Mm-hmm. And also try not to objectify the mascot as the thermostat in the family, you know, Oh, let's bring along, you know, whoever's the mascot because he or she always makes mom calmer or things go easier. And that's a big job. Mm-hmm. I've seen, however, though, where the mascot again, kind of gets put on a shelf because there's just no, you know, 
everybody's in their 40s and 50s, but yet the person who's filled the mascot role still just has no clout in terms yeah. of family decisions and stuff. Do, do you see that with other mascots? Yes. That's a good point. They get discounted. Um, you know, even if they do share an opinion, the they are continually, like you said, being put on a shelf or being put back in that role as, oh, well, that's just the jester's opinion. You know, mm-hmm. we don't take him seriously or her seriously. And so when you see that in a family, it helps a lot to say, oh, I actually would like to hear what you said again, you know, cause you can default by accidentally putting the person back there yourself. Mm-hmm. And it's important to take accountability and say, yeah, I think I just brushed over that. What did you mean by that? Or, you know, giving mm-hmm. some air to it. And sometimes they'll say, never mind. you know, they just shut down and it helps if you say, well, what I heard, but I didn't really uh, acknowledge was I heard you saying that it really bothers you that we always do Thanksgiving at my house you'd like to have it sometimes at your house. But I just joked and said, well, how would we ever eat then? You know, or something like that. <laughs> and so, you know, we can certainly do it at your house next year if you'd like, you know, and start to problem solve like that. Yeah. Do you, um, when you've got a family and you're, and you're working with the mascot here, that there's not a lot of, tuning into everyone's feelings and positions and roles. Just to say that everyone in the family, siblings included, are all still wearing their roles and don't even know they're wearing their roles, but you've got a mascot that's becoming enlightened. How successful is it for them to be able to kind of change their role with their family? I mean, because it, it feels like it's a really strong pigeonhole to be put in, you know, yeah. with the other roles it you know, it seems like there's some flexibility. A scapegoat can kind of tone, it can learn to kind of like not have to be the truth teller all the time. And, um, you know, the hero and the golden can choose to engage or not engage. Well, we've already said the golden, like I said, I've seen the goldens too. Like they're, they're kind of done for us. I, I hate to say that, but I feel like they're, they're in, <laughs> um, but other roles have a little bit more fluidity to them. And I, I feel like when you grow up with a mascot, that it, that's a tough one to break out of, especially if everybody else in the family is kind of comfortable in the role that they're in. Yeah. And that is always the hard part about sibling roles. And that I think is what called me most to the work is seeing the impact on the siblings because you you have an adult who's narcissistic and more rigid and less likely to change. But the younger you can deal with your siblings and try to salvage those relationships, the more hope there is to have that with some understanding of where the roles were. So with mascot, if uh, that mascot has come to an awareness that they are in that role, it's important for them to tell the, the family members that they can trust, that they often have felt that as the youngest, they're not heard in the family or they have to joke to be heard. And the second thing they can do is when they are sharing an opinion and people make a joke, say, well, I know that probably sounded like a joke, but I, I, that really is important to me. So educating them joke by joke that they are taking as a joke and it's not a joke and uh, not getting angry at them for not getting it right away, that they need to be re-educated to see you in a different way. And if you can be patient with that, sometimes you can get them to be more helpful with reinforcing your new way of being in the family. Mm-hmm. Well, cause the mascot, you know, like you said, can, you know, being an entertainer kind of gets read as emotionally immature 
And, yeah. And, yeah. And, and I think that's a big, you know, even with really intelligent people, they are viewed, you know, as still the emotionally immature. So sometimes the mascot's fun to have around. And then sometimes the mascot is like a big pain in the ass to have around, depending on the mascot and the family dynamic. Is that, is that right? Like you just, Yeah. And I think that's so sad because, yeah. uh, you know, you're only as good as you are entertaining for that moment. So on one day you're funny and we all laugh at a certain behavior and then the same behavior can be in the wrong spot at the wrong time and you get scapegoated for it. Mm -hmm. So that's one thing we've talked about how the hero can tussle sometimes with the mascot, but also the mascot can accidentally go too far or not have been fulfilled the role they were expected and they get scapegoated for it. And like I said, I've seen, you know, having, you know, ran into several people and not, I don't go around diagnosing all my friends or people that I run into, but you know, you see patterns. With folks <laughs> is that a stuff. disclaimer in case you have any family or friends? Yes. Like yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> not everything in my life is being documented on a podcast right now. Um, but I do, you know, I do see where, you know, when people try to get past the fact that they've been labeled in their family as the emotionally immature one. And it, it's sad for them and they struggle against it. What's your advice for that person, you know, to be able to, um, because, you know, like we've talked about this on several of these things, it's really hard to change other people. Yeah. You know, the day yeah. We've got the work to work on ourselves to do this. So what are we going to, what are we going to tell some mascots out there that are just like, Oh, I just, you know, I know I do it, but I don't like it. I don't like the fact that fam my family looks at me like this, this way. And I, I can't right. make them change how they look at me. Great. So I do. Yeah. yeah. So one thing is, um, and when there's times that you've as the mascot acted in a way that everybody's taking objection to, you can say, I'm sorry, it is a habit you know, from when I grew up and it's something I'd like to do less of. I apologize for, you know, whatever practical joke they just played or whatever inappropriate thing they said for them to give themselves a grace of an apology. It's not for the other people. It's for themselves. It's an old habit and it's something that was done. And as you correct the habit over and over, you'll get better at it. Um, and so that's, one thing that can help with a change in the family system. The other one is to always look at the family system as the highest level of practice you can get. They are the Olympics of your personal development. <laughs> so, you know, always think about, well, I can practice in my class, you know, that I'm taking in the evening. I can practice with my spouse, my friends, my kids. Um, and anything that happens in the actual family system is a bonus, you know? Mm -hmm. I, I'm not writing off that I'm always going to be seen this way, but I am accepting that that is how I have been seen and I will do my best when I'm there. And I am, that's all I'm asking of myself. Mm -hmm. Working with your mascot clients, um, what are some other key identifiers? Again, we, we do these podcast episodes, hoping that somebody's sitting here thinking and listening to this going, wow, I didn't you know, you've put a name on something that I'm feeling and it identifies this for me. How yeah. else can we identify mascots around us if they don't happen to be comedians? <laughs> right. So sometimes the mascot is underachieving. They have assumed that because they're entertaining or charismatic that they also can't be uh, smart or the brainy one. And I think it's really important for the mascot to give themselves room to redefine what they think their capacities are in their careers and uh, 
as uh, leaders in the community uh, to give themselves a chance to try on those new roles in new places where people haven't met them before. And uh, one lady I said, why don't you go to this meeting and not feel like you need to say anything in this meeting? You be the quiet one in this meeting. You be the one that lets the awkward silence float in the air because usually the mascot is dying in those times and wants to join in and entertain and make everybody feel better. Well, then you've been labeled and you're going to be the one that's looked to, to relieve tension in that new system. So trying out new ways of being in, uh, in systems where you don't have a history. Also looking at your life and being careful to evaluate how have you taken on this role and limited yourself at times? Mm-hmm. So because there's a hero child, of course, right? And if you've been saying, well, the hero got good grades, therefore I don't. Or the hero was the head of this, therefore I'm not going to be. So how do mascots parent, typically? Uh, mascots often are, sometimes they can fall into the enabler role or the dependent role with a, um, a narcissist. Unfortunately, because uh, they're good at breaking the ice, and when the narcissistic partner is acting a certain way, they can kind of calm everybody down. So sometimes, unfortunately, the um, mascot can fall into being a a parent who is dealing with being married to a narcissist and then dealing with the narcissistic family all over again. So that's hard. But another way that the mascot let's say that mascot picks a good healthy partner. Sometimes the mascot accidentally undermines the other parent because the other parent is trying to have a, a consistent way of holding structure in the family and the mascot may be uncomfortable with the tension of natural consequences. So the mascot may step in and try to alleviate tension by removing consequences. Oh, Interesting. And then the partner gets rather frustrated because it's like, okay, you're the fun dad or the fun mom, and I'm the one that ends up being the homework person or whatever, and that's not fair to me. So they're the more permissive parent. Often, yes, often they're the more permissive parent. Sometimes, unfortunately, they are too sarcastic for their children. They are they're joking at their children's expense mm, yeah. and they're accidentally minimizing their kids' feelings and they don't mean to do it. It's how they've treated themselves and they're accidentally treating their kid that way. And I know one of your main goals with the podcast is to always help, you know, help people be better parents. And so it's important always to look at, well, what was our role and how might, you know, some of my coping mechanisms as now as a parent, be hurtful to my child. Yeah, that's actually really great because I was sitting there, you know, again, kind of reflecting because we know mascot isn't a role. It's like there isn't like A through Z that you follow that there's, you know, you have different parts of it that might be you. And and so you mentioned the one, which is mascots, the permissive parent, but then, you know, I, then you tapped on something that I, that I have seen as well, which is mascots also the joker and sometimes joking at other people's expenses, which is kids. And, you know, because where it's like, yeah, I mean, right. Where the, the children of mascots, depending on the type of mascot, their parent was, has a great relationship with them or actually it's the parent they don't like as much as the other parent. And so I, and I'm curious now that you said that I go, I wonder if that's the why right there of making light 
of, you know, whatever the kid is going through or joking about it. And because I know personally, the jokes hurt, you know, and that was one of the things that I, you know, had dealt with was, you know, being teased at my expense. And it's just like, it's still, you know, we, you know, I've talked about this. It still burns me today. It's a trigger for me um, of doing that because it wasn't funny, <laughs> you know, right. at the time. Nobody um, Nobody but, says, I love being made fun of. Right? Yeah. Oh, please tell me again how stupid I am. <laughs> What's that weight joke again? Let's run through that. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. That one time when you were 10 and you did that really stupid thing. Yeah. Well, I'm 46 now. It's not stupid anymore. Right. So. Um, but, but the mascot, that is a real danger because the always diffusing the situations, always making light of the situation, because that is a piece of me. And like, I'm glad you, you know, you brought that up that, for parenting that to keep in mind that when you're a joker that that doesn't include your children as they are little ones, you know, or even teenagers and stuff. Um, yeah. You know, humor can cut so deep and um, it's very powerful. And so it's always important to be respectful of the fact that you as an adult have so much more firepower when it comes to humor. It's like if you're splashing in a lake with your child, you know, you would never splash at the adult level towards the kid. Mm-hmm. You know, they're splashing at you with all they've got and, you know, it's barely getting you. But if you were to just wallop them with a big splash, it's just, it's not fair play. And it's going to be shaming to the child. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And that's, I mean, we talk about childhood traumas on here, which we're talking about how the mascot dealt with their trauma. You know, the, the teasing aspect of it is an, is a kind of a, the next generation version of, of passing that trauma on mm-hmm. is, is through that piece of it. Um, well, we know some of the redeeming qualities of the mascot is that they're, they can be fun to hang out with. <laughs> yeah. uh, so, so what are some of the successes that you've seen with mascots as well in life with having, having had this role and then running with it? Yeah. So uh, with mascots, often, you know, they're wonderful public speakers. They really know how to handle a room. Remember with that nonverbal um, uh, coping mechanism where they were sensing the mood in a room and the Mm -hmm. tension level, they're excellent at managing conflict when they have also been able to mature. So, you know, some mascots have arrested development where they're forever young and a little silly and everybody's like, oh, you know, I don't know if, you know, if this person's mm-hmm. going to behave appropriately. Other mascots were able to take the humor and the ability to sense uh, the energy of people very well without staying in an immature place. They're actually very, very mature and they can handle a lot of conflict within a room or during a process. So that's one really useful trait that they have if they have also been able to take maturity with them along with that old quality. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Now I have a lot of people that, because I also am connected to the wedding industry and I know a lot of DJs out there and they're notorious (laughs) for being them. So uh, what I don't want is I don't want a bunch of DJs all upset that they've been accused of having a narcissistic mother. So are they, (laughs) you know, are, is everyone that you know out there that a natural stage person a mascot, like what's the difference, (laughs) you know, is there a difference? That's a good point. Um, (laughs) You know, of course, other people develop humor skills for different reasons, entertaining abilities for other reasons. Um, You know, just because you grew up in a burning house doesn't mean you're going to become a fireman. And just because you didn't (laughs) grow up in a burning house doesn't mean you won't become a fire person either. So, uh, 
every entertainer certainly has not been in the mascot role in their life and they don't have necessarily dysfunctional parenting. It was something that, you know, humor or entertaining gave them joy and they've been able to take that into their life in a healthy way. So we can't knock all the DJs. There might be one out there. <laughs> all right. Well, that's why I just didn't want anybody going, you saying my mom was narcissistic. I love that woman. I'm like, no. Right. right. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, so is there something else, Michelle, that you'd like to talk about on this topic here? Um, basically, I think that it's important as a mascot uh, to be aware of your self-care, aware of your own needs, that your needs are appropriate to share, that you don't have to be needless, wantless to be likable. That as a matter of fact, being needless, wantless can sometimes make you feel unapproachable. Um, most of us like to be able to help other people be able to contribute. And so sometimes the, you know, the class clown or the court jester or mascot is someone that doesn't easily let people help them. And it's important to allow for reciprocity in a relationship. You know, don't always try to be the one that is doing everything in the relationship to keep it fun and entertaining. Mm -hmm. And also to value the other parts of yourself. You know, your ability to entertain is a skill. It's not who you are. So it's important to acknowledge that this is one tool you can use, but it is not your identity. You know, just because we were placed in certain roles doesn't mean that's our identity. It means it's one thing that we got good at in order to survive a great deal of stress. <laughs> yeah, right, right. And is it good to, if you are dealing with a family and you keep being, you keep getting put in the bucket that you don't want to be in? Because we've talked about this before, that sometimes separation is best. And, you know, and I think about the mascots who are trying to change that role with it, feeling like it may be a little bit harder for them to do it than some of the other roles. You can't just easily slip in and out of it. Um, you know, what's your advice to a mascot that has a family that just refuses to let them be anything other than the immature jester? So if you have a family that's too rigid to allow you change, then it's important for you to spend time with the family only to the extent that it's healthy for you. And so that might mean that you are coming every other holiday instead of every one, or it might mean, mean that you take a, a break at a time uh, from the family and just let them know that you're going through a busy time because, um, Self-growth is a very busy <laughs> activity. There's a lot of introspection that needs to be done. There's a lot of new things to be tried. And you can just say, oh, you know, the, I'm just, you can say you're taking a course, you know, on personal growth. And, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you can call in once a week or once a month. But right now, you know, things are just busier than usual because we often only allow ourselves permission to be busy at things that are paid. Mm -hmm. And that's a flaw of our culture. But there's a million things that we also need to be doing for ourselves to be a productive person in society. And for us to take time to give ourselves a course in how can I be something other than a mascot is completely appropriate as an adult. Mm -hmm. have, you, have you ever seen the... Um the mascot also trying to behave as the hero? Because we talked about it, the mascot really trying to like diffuse the situation. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, and is that, is that a, 
is that something that you've ever seen where the mascot, because of that, like, I just want to make everybody happy that they start to encroach in on the solving, the problem solving role. Yes. And so sometimes that can cause some competition between hero and mascot because the hero obviously has ways that um, he or she feels like she is already doing a good job and helping the family. And then the mascot comes along and has a new way of relieving tension in the family. And that can feel very threatening to the hero mm-hmm. uh, because, okay, one, the hero's not in any control. Now we've got two kind of things to deal with. We've got an entertaining, charismatic sibling, and we've got uh, a mom that is in a place where she's addicted to intensity. So both of those things can feel very intense for the hero child to try to balance. And the mascot can absolutely dethrone the hero when he or she's the funniest one, more entertaining. You know, the mascot will often steal the day. If they always had the day, they'd be the hero. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of times with being in, you know, in, in an entertaining role, you're going to bomb. You know, you just can't be consistently always entertaining. So the hero will eventually get his or her spot back. But for the mascot, that can be really exciting and scary, you know, to suddenly kind of have the helm of the family Mm -hmm. as the hero child and all that responsibility. And then the hero can also be scared, like, well, what is my identity if I'm not helping? Right. Yeah, exactly. So how do you you know, what's your message for people that feel like they're, you know, struggling to keep, keep the family together, or keep it all together when you're, you're talking about the toxicity of a, of a narcissistic family, you know, dynamic. How do you coach them? Do you tell them you got to give that idea up or? Yeah. Yeah. And that's very difficult, but if you don't give it up, you don't give any of the other siblings room to change either. So you vacating your role is actually helpful because it allows space for everybody else to take pieces of that on and and start to feel those experiences as well. Um, Also, if you're taking, if you're stepping out of the role, it allows you to see what is life like when you don't have all that responsibility for that particular role. Mm-hmm. And you might have more time on your hands and a lot more peace. In your yeah. Heart. And so, yeah. you know, quote unquote, fixing the family is very difficult. The best you can do is to be compassionate when you're telling the truth, try not to label, try to rely more on describing behaviors and how you would like to see them be different or you would like to, you think they'd be more productive in X or Y way. So, you know, trying to avoid making everybody feel like they're labeled, help guiding them to understand that you're recognizing certain behaviors so that they can then do their own research and go, hmm, those behaviors are consistent with. <laughs> but for you to come in with the label is usually going to get you labeled mm-hmm. um, as a troublemaker or as judgmental, you know, and I often see that people actually fight the realization more if they are given a basket of labels to apply to themselves and the family. It's really something that's really best if somebody is on their own journey and they're putting the pieces together for themselves. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and, and you've said this many times, so everybody listening, don't go labeling everybody after you listen to these podcasts. That's not yeah. what we're doing It's here. a really quick way to draw fire, and you really don't <laughs> need it. You've already had enough intensity in your life. And so only talk about labels with people that are trusted others that you know can handle the information. And be careful you know, to ask yourself, can you make that judgment yet? If yep. you're recently learning these labels, the fanciers probably know. Oh, yeah. Probably somebody you trust in the family that actually has their own work to do as well. And if you tell them this now, it's too much for them to uh, modulate while they're growing themselves. Yeah, yeah. And I, I mean, I can attest to that. I am riddled with bullets from doing that where, you know, so you, you sit there and you can, the truth teller role and then you I, get shot. Yeah. <laughs> and not with my, you know, not with my other, fa- you know, I've been around a lot of families, you know, my own families, whether they're married in or, or whatever, but it's like, Oh, you know, I, I I'm in hero mold. I'm going to fix this. And I hear, guess what? I've got this bucket of knowledge, everybody. So just sit down around me and let me explain to you what we've got going on here and we'll all be fine. Only yeah. to just get it all just bomb, you know, right back in my face. And so I, I mean, to everybody else, I cannot say this enough. Michelle is absolutely right. You can't do it. You know, don't try it because it will, you know, nobody is sitting around going, wow, I just was waiting for you to show up and tell me exactly who I am. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Nobody. Nobody is waiting for that information from you. So, and another thing that you can do is set intentions, you know, Um, you can do affirmations. You can do a lot of work on your Uh, in your own headspace, you can say, I'm open to the possibility that my family can heal without me telling them anything. Mm -hmm. You know, trying to open up energy that can be healing. And other people have spiritual practices where they can pray, you know, and meditate. And all those things are so useful because uh, there's so much in family systems that's nonverbal that you changing your emotional or spiritual posture can make a difference in mm-hmm. the family. Yeah, like a butterfly effect, right? Something yeah. small and it just kind of gets it going there. Yeah. Well, and that's why I was like, you know, with the mascot there, if they're always the one type, and you said that, if they just changed a little bit, it allows everybody else an opportunity to kind of see the space, breathe the air without that in the room and see if it actually kind of, uh, you know, helps them open up to other possibilities for themselves. Yes. I do want to talk about before we, before we wrap this up, if we're looking at the parenting side of this and our kid has been labeled the class clown, um, what should we, should we start sitting here wondering if we're, you know, what we might be doing wrong? I mean, because what we're talking about is how the mascot is this sad person who is diffusing energy and anger and, and sadness and, and trying to get laughs and stuff like that because something's bothering them. So my kid is, you know, co- conferences are coming up. I don't think any of my kids are class clowns. <laughs> let's just say some pleasant time of year. <laughs> right? Yeah. But let's say somebody out there has a kid who's always been the class clown as parent. What should they probably be kind of making some inquiries into regarding? Yeah, I would one, you know, I would wonder as a parent, then what in, is there tension in the family that my child is uh, releasing and redirecting with their humor? And that's not my child's job. You know, as a parent, you know, the, the adults in the family should be working to reduce tension to the point that a joke once in a while, of course, is welcome, but it's not needed. So the child shouldn't be in a position where the, it is needed for them to diffuse tension in the family. 
Mm-hmm. If that's happening, then the parents and the adults and the caregivers involved in this family system need to be doing more heavy lifting on decreasing why there's tension in the family. And would the would a kid a kid's behavior at school be totally different than what's happening with them at home, or would they? Probably, yeah, yeah, that can happen. So you know, if your kid is class clown at school and you're hearing about it first, hmm, is that happening at home? You know, if it is, why? Okay. If the answer is no, then you can go to what kind of tension is going on in the classroom mm-hmm. and why is my child seeking attention in the classroom? What's missing in that academic experience or what do I need to help my child do differently so that they can get what they need out of what is already there mm-hmm. in a way that is socially acceptable, that they're not always going to be taking flack for from authority figures. Mm-hmm. It might be that the class has figured out we can, you know, we can relieve the tension of boredom. If we get so-and-so let's just say your child going, then if that person's being class clown, then none of us have to deal with the frustration of learning the next five minutes of algebra. <laughs> you know? <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's no coincidence that we have, you know, a whole term called class clown because we, uh, we love to have them often, <laughs> right? They're helpful in that way, but they're not necessarily going to achieve the goals that you're in the class for. Yep. Yep. Okay. Well, this has been another amazing hour and I'm looking forward to actually getting into scapegoat, which is going to be our last role that we're going to be discussing here. Cause as we were talking about the, you know, saving the family kind of a thing that feels like that that's kind of what scapegoat feels like they're the truth teller role is, is that, you know, can anybody else see what I see and I need to make sure you all see it. Yeah. And so that'll probably be a really good discussion with us as well. Talking about, again, not to put labels on everybody and, um, and to, you know, to kind of, honor what we have to do, you know, to heal ourselves from these family dynamics and stuff. And so this has been another, another fantastic episode. And I appreciate everything that you've shared with us and everybody that's listening about this piece. And so everyone, if your friend's a DJ, that doesn't necessarily mean they're a mascot. They're a comedian. Give your kids a class clown. It doesn't mean you're a narcissist. <laughs> um, you know, and or, your favorite comedian doesn't necessarily have an unhappy childhood. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know, there are happy, wonderful people that are just really, really funny. <laughs> but um, if you do find yourself feeling like this dynamic, you know, fits you and suits you, Michelle, they can find you at NarcissisticMother.com or MichellePiper.com, right? And you offer yep. coaching for folks yeah. to, to kind of navigate their, their narcissistic family and their role, correct? Right. And, you know, to stress the difference between coaching and counseling, a lot of people that I deal with uh, have therapists or have dealt with therapy, and I have a therapy background, but the purpose of coaching as it pertains to the narcissistic mother and the narcissistic family system is getting tools to deal, you know, with real life on the ground issues at this time. So how do you apply? Like, I don't feel like I have confidence due to the fact that um, I dealt with a narcissistic mother or I find myself falling into this role I'd like to change. So it's a very goal-directed way to work. And um, it is different from therapy in that psychotherapy is a a deeper dive and often handles uh, um, more severity of issues. Yeah. Yeah. So coaching, you're probably not going to cry as often as you do in therapy. (laughs) Right. Yeah. I've done both. (laughs) Right. (laughs) 
Awesome. Well, Michelle, I'm, I'm glad to hear that the construction has toned down behind you. <laughs> I do apologize. Hard to predict road work. That's right. That's right. And for everybody else, we all get it. So people are probably listening in their cars anyways. And so they couldn't tell if it was actually outside their car, if that was on the show. So we're good. <laughs> well, thanks for everybody's patience. <laughs> well, I hope you have a fantastic afternoon. I appreciate you so much um, being on One Broken Mom again with me. Thank you. Thank you for listening to One Broken Mom. You can find podcast notes on my website at aniquiracone.com. And there I'll provide all links to all of the resources that we mentioned on the episode. Also, if you have any questions, comments, or ideas for other episodes, feel free to send me an email. And if you are interested in sponsoring the show, I'd love to have you be a part of the team. Finally, if you like what you hear, please share the podcast and leave a review so that others can find it. We are all here to get better together. I am the host, Ami Kurkoni, and as always, I am super grateful to have you as a listener. Until next time, have a great day.